Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host Isla and every episode I sit down with experts in marine science and conservation to ask them your questions about sharks and the oceans. And today, do I have a treat for you? Because not only are we talking to the wonderful Alison Towner about one of the most charismatic and perhaps most famous species of shark out there, but we are also diving into some extremely new science. So new, in fact, that at time of recording, the paper hasn't even come out yet. So many of you have been in touch asking us to cover what is going on in South Africa between white sharks and orca, or killer whales as they're also known. For those of you who haven't heard about this, I'll fill you in very briefly, but don't worry, we go into much more detail in the episode itself. But essentially, there are some parts of the South African coastline that were once considered hotspots for white sharks, including False Bay and Hans Bay, where Alison works. That was until 2016, when suddenly the white sharks couldn't be found and dead individuals started washing ashore, each one with a very unusual wound. In each dead white shark that washed up, the liver had been removed with almost surgical precision. Scientists were scratching their heads, wondering what on earth could have caused this, when they realised that two, yes, just two, orca had been sighted more frequently in the area. Fast forward to now, and we know that orca are predating on white sharks in the areas they used to frequent. But why now? Why white sharks? Have they done this before? And what does this mean not only for the sharks, but the wider marine ecosystem? These are all questions that marine biologist and white shark expert Alison has been asking for the last six years. Chances are, if you're interested in white sharks, if you know about them, if you love them, you will know of Alison. She has been studying them in Hansby for 15 years and has made appearances on National Geographic, BBC and the Discovery Channel. You might have even seen her this year on Shark Week. In 2007, she moved to Hansby to begin work as a dive guide, instructor and marine biologist for Marine Dynamics Shark Tours. Being out at sea every day, observing these incredible animals in their natural habitat, allowed Alison to collect enough data to complete a master's degree and later a PhD, studying their movements with a focus on tracking and telemetry. She was actually right in the middle of her PhD research when the orca showed up and everything changed, but aside from panicking, she has turned that data into some really novel science, and she is now one of the leading scientists looking to understand the novel interactions between them and white sharks. In this episode, we talk about this fascinating new research, some of which was literally published at the beginning of October, so a few weeks ago from when this podcast will air. This paper analyzes the first ever footage of orca hunting white sharks and shows some very, very interesting things. We also discuss what this means for white sharks. Are they still at the top of the food chain? What impact this is having on their movements and behavior, as well as what this means for their top ocean rival, the orca. Is this behavior a natural occurrence or is it something that has been human induced? And of course, I couldn't let Alison get away without talking about her love for white sharks, how they are adapted to be such awesome predators, and how she got to studying them in the first place. It was such a pleasure to talk to Alison. She is so passionate about what she does, 
And it's so exciting to talk to her right at the moment that she is discovering behaviours that are brand new to science. We'll put links to all the papers she discusses here in the show notes so that you can check them out for yourself. Okay, without further ado, let's dive into our episode. Hello, Alison, and welcome to the Whole Tooth Podcast. Hello, Isla. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited uh, to be finally doing this episode because I wanted to do it ever since I started the podcast. Um, And obviously, as papers have come out and things, especially this year, um, my idea for this whole podcast episode has changed and so many of our listeners have got in touch to ask us about some of the things that we're going to cover in this podcast. And we're going to talk about some new things as well, which is super, super exciting. But before we get into the meat of this episode, uh, pun not intended, I want to talk a little bit about you first and get to know you. And we have a question that we ask every single guest on this podcast that we start with, start every episode with. And I've discovered it's quite a hard one for a lot of marine biologists and I expect for you it's probably going to be pretty pretty difficult (laughs) but that question is what is your most memorable experience in the ocean? Oh I absolutely love that question and I must say it is hard because as you say especially if you spent a lot of time on the ocean then there's multiple uh, things you can connect to but for me I guess one thing is I've spent a lot of time in the natural world of a white shark which is something I guess that not many people have had the the privilege of doing so following around the species in its own world and really observing what it gets up to when it's not a, a cage diving boat and so yeah some of the things that really resonate with me as my most memorable experiences on sea is for example being sat out there on a research boat with interns from all around the world tracking a white shark a big white shark and then it comes launching out the water with a Cape fur seal in its mouth. And there we are watching, you know, the most incredible predator-prey interaction uh, in real time. I mean, that just, that you never unsee that once you've seen it. Um, and, and I guess the other thing as well is just, just following them around in their natural habitat, man. So going down by beaches and watching them just patrol in and out the surf, naturally resting, you know, huge big silhouettes on white sand, crystal clear water, all of that goes into my most fem- uh, fond memories on the ocean so yeah there's there's way too many I could probably spend an hour just going you know picking through all of them but but certainly being in their world I would say um is is my most memorable experiences oh my gosh I can imagine so as well because working with such big animals and such you know impressive animals as well and like you said just seeing them in their natural habitat just doing their own thing must be absolutely spectacular um and especially seeing them breach as well that's something that's definitely on my bucket list so going right back to the very beginning you grew up in Lancashire which is in the UK and that I mean I don't know much about the south I'm very much a northerner and probably me saying it's the south as well will probably offend you as well though and from the the UK (laughs) because everyone's like no no south is definitely London but I mean southern for me but it's definitely kind of like a fair drive from the coast. So I was really interested to know, like, how did you develop a passion for sharks? 
Oh, that made me laugh so much now. I mean, I'm I'm typically classed as a northerner, right? I've got a northern English accent. But given that you're right up in the Hebrides, you're like the extreme north. And I guess London <laughs> would be the extreme south to me, Birmingham being kind of the low, lower end of the belt. Um, <laughs> so my mum's from Glasgow, by yeah. the way. I've spent quite a lot of time in Scotland. And um, yeah, as you say, far, far, far away from the coast. Um and even the coastline of Lancashire, I mean, we have we have beaches like Blackpool, which are typically very popular, but not really that thriving in, you know, predators and and, and lots and lots of marine life. So so my passion, actually, my interest in sharks came uh, actually from my from my late father. He uh, my father used to live in South Africa before I was born um, and he was, you know, an avid um he was a writer and an angler and really passionate about especially large predatory fish and I guess those stories and that time that I spent with my father young really drove my interest in marine life and um, particularly sharks and uh, yeah so that's where it came from it doesn't really really fit with the whole being from Lancashire but I, I knew that I had to to certainly um, pursue greener pastures if I wanted to see the the species of fish I was interested in. <laughs> yeah and it's so interesting as well I was saying to the guest that we had on last week, uh, Rachel Brooks as well, quite a lot of people on this podcast actually have come from backgrounds where they've actually lived far away from the sea. And so, but their passion developed from like family members like yourself or from literally just like watching nature documentaries and things. But yeah, so lovely that you're able as well to carry on your dad's passion for the ocean and the animals that live in the ocean. That's really, really special. But why did you decide to work with white sharks specifically? Well, I guess it's not as if there's a lot of work with white sharks, right? So my my initial interest was to see one, number one. I was very young when I moved down to South Africa. I was 21 years old. I'd only just gotten my undergrad. Um, and of course, cage diving ecotourism, uh, ecotourism is a big part of the economy here in South Africa. So I came down here. I, I actually went on a cage diving boat. And after ticking the box of seeing one and realizing the gap in knowledge that existed at the time in the area, the fact that the local operator was looking for a guide stroke biologist, it was like the stars were aligned. And I'm like, oh, hang on, that there could actually be an opportunity here. So I guess I didn't really set off to go and uh, work with them per se, but maybe it, maybe it was in the stars. So um, grabbed the opportunity that, that was open and uh, didn't look back since. Yeah, it was fate. It was fate. When did you when did you, when did you actually start working uh in South Africa just out of interest? Yeah, it's funny. It was it was 19th of January 2007 that I took the boat trip out with Marine Dynamic Shark Tours to go and see a a great white shark and I'd come down to South Africa on the premise that they were looking for a guide and I'd been quite cheeky. I'd sent an email and said, "Well, I think you need a female on your team." Uh, because we've got a whole a whole boat nice. boat crew of men here. Who's going to look after the women? I can lift anchor. I'm a dive chick. Let's let's do this. So I came down and did not expect that two weeks later the owner of the company would say, "Right, get your stuff, go back to the UK. You've got a job." So I literally w- walked in the door back home in, in Lancashire to my mum. I'd just lived in the Middle East previously, and right, mum, I'm off to South Africa. But how long? Oh no, I'm moving there now. <laughs> <laughs> it was a done deal and that was it like I literally came straight back down to it was Hansby that I was based so that just two hours east of Cape Town uh, white shark capital of the world at the time and that was it spent the next five years solid just on a cage diving boat every single day collecting data collecting data collecting data and that's what enabled my 
uh, my master's degree and, and then later my PhD. I love the idea that you just walked up to them and were like, yeah, you definitely need a, a woman yes. on board. That's a fabulous way to get yourself a job. <laughs> While you were out on the on the boats and things, um, were you were you thinking of the questions that you were going to then go on to investigate for your master's and then your PhD, were they starting to form sort of while you were out at sea? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can relate to this, Isla. Once you've finished a degree, I can even remember feeling like this when I was that young. You, you don't actually even want to think about studying for a while. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, 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 I section myself off with maybe a different part of the, you know, the, the general consensus. I'm sure there are those extremely academic people that just want to nosedive right into the next one. But like I was I was ready to sort of observe the animal in the field and very underqualified at the time in that I'd never actually seen a white shark until I stepped on the boat there. So I had a lot to learn about their behavior. I had a lot to to see and understand before I could even think about the possibility of research questions and exploring you know, hypotheses. But it didn't take long before the cog started turning, of course, and, um, you know, just just getting in touch with the local knowledge in the area. So those boats, the cage diving ecotourism boats in, in Hans Bay, were going out on a daily basis, which is such a rare opportunity to observe white sharks, actually, because if you look everywhere else around the world that that researchers study them, there's always the seasonal limitation uh, or access limitation. This is an aggregation site where white sharks are within minutes from shore, different animals in and out the bay, seasonally available the whole year through. Okay, obviously variability in numbers, but uh, you know these people that are out there on the boats are seeing them every day and have, have an extraordinary access. So of course, speaking to the locals on the boats, when I'm saying locals, I'm talking about skippers. I'm talking about dive masters on board. There's eight boats that operate out of, out of Hansbein. It's a very small community. So everybody talks to each other, you know, over a beer in the pub at night and, and shares what they think and feel. And so, so I garnered all that information. And yeah, of course, within a year, I was like, right, well, I've got definitely some questions here for a master's. Um, and speaking to the local fishermen as well, noticing how catches influenced everything. So don't just look through the binoculars of okay we've got one species here look broader into what's happening in the bay itself what are the oceanographic features what's the uh the prey species available it's not just about seals um and of course yeah so eventually it, it was right okay i'm plummeting back into this academic thing again and and here we go with the masters uh, there'd never been a, a proper published regional population estimate for hansberg when i arrived it was just a preliminary estimates that were general senses but not not published um so yep in 2012 i i submitted my master's degree to university of cape town and uh specifically answered a few of those those questions you mentioned your master's there and you're now you know coming to the end of your phd which is is so exciting we were just talking at the beginning of you're in the write-up stage which i know exactly how that feels it's really exciting you can see the light at the end of the tunnel but also I felt a bit of a zombie in the last couple of months of my thesis. So I'm so grateful for you to give up some of your precious time to chat to us. Um, but I just wondered if you could tell our listeners, what questions are you setting out to answer with your PhD? Well, initially, my PhD was very broadly titled, and I know it's a working title always with a thesis till your hand in, but movement, e movement ecology of white sharks in South Africa. And I mean... We're talking to Save Our Seeds podcast, The Whole Tooth Now, and Save Our Seeds were instrumental in starting me up in my PhD because at this point, you know, I'd just come off the cage diving boat doing boat-based observational data. That was all well and done, but now I needed 
to implement devices onto white shark to see where they move and where they spend their time and that's where it gets really expensive that's where new permits are involved that's where research boats are involved so it basically stepped the whole study up a whole notch and um yeah the the general question for my phd at the beginning was right well we've we've solved potentially how many white sharks move through this coastal bay we've looked at their um you know their their responses to environmental parameters we've done basically all we can from a boat-based perspective and of course we have to consider the uh, limitation of chumming vessels and capture heterogeneity but now where are they going where do they spend their time um, and acoustic telemetry was really starting to be rolled out within South Africa at that exact time. Uh, my good friends and colleagues in False Bay and Muscle Bay, Dr. Alison Cock, Dr. Enrico Gennari, were busy with, with uh, telemetry work on white sharks. So it made complete sense to go down the avenue. Uh, we got the Bay of Hansby kitted out with acoustic receivers, thanks to Save Our Seas. Uh, and we, we started answering, you know, started to go about answering a whole bunch of questions regarding their local bay use in terms of um, space, but also where do they go coastal and you know what 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 are the temporal and spatial patterns in their movement basically that's how it all started but lo and behold three years into the thesis uh, a lot changed very quickly so yeah yes <laughs> yes 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 um which we will get on to later on in this episode i don't want to give too much away but well the title of the episode is going to give it away basically <laughs> but um but yeah some some other ocean predators made themselves apparent. Um, and I can't imagine what that must have felt like kind of halfway through your thesis. I imagine it was like a mixture of, okay, this is interesting, but also panic at the same time. I don't know how you dealt with that, but it's all come together. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the episode. So coming on to speaking of white sharks in, in Hans Bay, um, it's often referred to as the white shark capital of the world, which is what you said earlier as well. Um, why is it so important for white sharks specifically? Why do they tend to aggregate around there? Well, as you just said, with the Hebrides, there's all the right conditions. And that doesn't just relate to prey, but prey obviously being one one major part of it. So. We've got this coastal bay that has many different species in it of uh, of interest to white sharks of all different sizes. And, um, you know, great whites, when they're young, they're juvenile, they're, you know, they're, they're, let's say, young of the year. They're predominantly feeding on smaller fish, smaller sharks, skates, rays, and all of which aggregate in, in relative abundance here in, in Hans Bay on the inshore reefs. Um, lots of seasonal fish species move through. The environmental conditions are optimal. So... Um, we've, we've got both the Atlantic and Indian Oceans that, that mix here off South Africa, the Agullas and the Benguela Current. So depending on the different time of year, you've either got really nutrient-rich upwelled cold water, which has very high productivity associated with it in terms of fish species, or you've got um, the more stable sort of um, 15, 16 Celsius boundary uh, water temperature from the Agullas. And that, again, is, is optimal for white sharks to then forage for faster swimming pace, such as our, our Cape Fur Seal population. And that's the exact time, actually, that the Cape Fur Seal pups are just starting to make their way out to hunt for themselves. So, yeah, white sharks have divine timing. They, you know, they stop in and they do their own things. The, the satellite work that we've done on them, satellite tagging work, shows that, you know, not every size and sex of white shark behaves the same. And that extends through, I guess, all your, your chondrichthian species. So your juveniles, your males are much more coastal, your large females are much more offshore, uh, returning to coast every couple of years, let's say. Um, it, there's a lot of variability, but basically in a nutshell, Hans Bay has everything in terms of food and conditions that would be interesting or optimal for a white shark to, to be in the area. They don't 
they're not residents. So that's a term that I think we always have to be very careful with in science. And obviously, there's lots of different applications to the term residency. But the white sharks here generally are pit stopping in and out. So it would be if a white shark spent a couple of months here, that would be considered quite long. Um, generally, the turnover is pretty high. If you go down the coast of Mossel Bay, always uh, the cohort of white sharks that they saw there more typically had a bit of a longer residency period, but more juvenile white sharks. Also, the bay structure is a bit different. It's warmer. Uh, it's a little bit more protected. So maybe more conducive to your subadult white sharks and hanging around a bit longer. And then to the west, False Bay, their white sharks were actually typically larger than the, the hands by white sharks we uh, documented. And um, and so their white sharks would be much more seasonal and um, they'd go years without, without seeing one white shark. It'd return and they'd recognise it as, you know, the same huge animal that's just returned back to feed again in that, that spot. So they're like homing pigeons. The older they get, they recognise they have sight fidelity to the bays they're successfully hunting in. Um, but age and sex definitely determines what they do and how long they spend in areas and what they're eating so so incredibly interesting and like this is the thing that blows my mind about sharks is that we're still finding this kind of stuff out about them and just mind-boggling to me yeah but I mean obviously one of the things about white sharks that a lot of people love about them but also that a lot of people you know associate with a white shark is the fact that they are often seen as kind of like the optimal ocean predator they're kind of really built to to hunt and to sort of thrive in that top predator role so what are some of the adaptations that they have to help them thrive in that kind of lifestyle well the thing is with white sharks I mean yes they are despite what's happened now and I actually just thought to myself while we talked about white sharks in Falls Bay, Hansby, Mussel Bay so much has changed even with the, the stock structure in each area but yeah I'm, I'm going back to the good old days when things seemed seemed normal um, <laughs> but yeah as apex predators like white sharks if they are not not in sync with their other apex predator rival within the ecosystem. They are top rulers of the roost. So their adaptations, regional endotherms, they can hunt in much, much, much colder water, um, very fast-swimming prey because they've got warm eyes, brains, and stomachs, right? They can cope with fluctuating conditions in terms of they've got a really broad temperature range they can tolerate. I think the latest paper that came out from the Northwest Atlantic on satellite tagging data, Frank Settal, um, showed minus one degree Celsius, a large female white shark spent time in. So we've got from that end of the spectrum right up to the tropics, Guadalupe Island, just sort of 24, 25, 26 degrees Celsius. They can they can tolerate a broad temperature range. So all of these things give them that competitive advantage that they can hunt. They've got a lot of plasticity in their diet as well. That's a, another great adaptation. So yeah, they're not just sort of um, restricted to these sort of narrow parameters of range that many other species are. And of course, just as an athlete of the ocean, right, the swim speeds they're capable of, their, you know, their, their hunting abilities, there's just so much they've got packaged into to, to what they are. And I do think despite what's happened, apex predator, they're still very deserving of that term. <laughs> yes, yes. And that's a that's, I would say, probably one of the most common questions that we've got on email. I think we'll we'll address it properly a little bit later. Um, but yeah, they are one of the coolest animals on earth in my opinion um they're just so amazing and so there isn't a better animal that's adapted to suit its niche and its lifestyle 
one question we did get on uh, on Instagram from underwater underscore Joe was how big can white sharks actually get? Pretty big as far as fish go. So I think 6.4 meters total length. Um, total length being, of course, uh, tip of snout to tip of upper caudal lobe. So straight line. Um, 6.4 meters is big. I mean, we're looking at a good couple of tons worth of fish at that size. They're extremely muscular. They're extremely stocky. Um, so, I mean, if we just, you know, look at them at three meters and then look at them at four meters, if you, a great way to do that is from a cage diving boat, for example, you, you see people's jaws drop when they see a four meter arrive. I mean, they almost would estimate it being much bigger than four meters just because it looks so much bigger than the three meter. And that's not in length, it's in girth, it's in muscle, it's in, it's in, you know, sheer weight. So, um, yeah, as much as 6.4 meters might not sound that that large, it, it really, really is when we when we look at a white shark at that size. Absolutely. And I, I always like to think about it in terms of, because obviously when you say three or four, like you said, it doesn't sound that high. But when you consider how tall we actually are and then put that in perspective in comparison to a white shark, right? It's it's pretty, That's that's what helps me to think about their size in comparison to us as well and I imagine when you're actually in the water with them or at least even on the boat like you feel very small. Oh I mean look at the images that came from Hawaii with uh, Ocean Ramsey and that huge animal in the Pacific I mean there's no better illustration I think uh, visually of, of getting the appreciation for a mature white shark size than that I mean it's it's just incredible right so uh they are they are massive, yeah. They're certainly not small fish. And when I've necropsied them here in Hansby, I mean, the first animal we did was a five meter shark. That animal wouldn't even fit on the back of a. Um, it was a military uh, pickup, so it was a huge, uh, an old vehicle that they call them a samal here in South Africa. That shark, the whole thing was like folded up and hanging off the back of the vehicle. I remember <laughs> driving behind in it and just think, you know, driving behind it and thinking, my goodness, that's not something you're going to see every day. And what gives you better scale for the sand? And that wasn't even a six meter, that's a five meter animal. So they they are big. They're maybe not Jaws big. I think that maybe Spielberg might have exaggerated that slightly more towards a Baskin shark size, right? But like, um, <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're big. Yeah, but he definitely used autistic license there. But I mean, it was a movie, so we'll let him off there. We'll let him off. Yeah, a little bit. And uh, am I right in thinking as well that it's the females that are bigger than the males? Yeah, definitely. So, um, I mean, you can get some huge males and especially if you've got a male that's well fed. I actually saw a photograph yesterday from the Neptune Islands that Andrew Fox put out. And you would think at a glance the shark's a pregnant female because the stomach's like so rotund. But then you can see the claspers, right? So no no, no mistaking that the males do also attain very large sizes. But generally speaking, there's the sexual dimorphism is there. The females have to, uh, well, they reach maturity at a later age and a bigger body size. And of course, that makes sense to breed you know it's, it makes sense to be big bigger faster so yeah nice nice and we took we you've talked a little bit or you talked already about kind of how the sexual composition and abundance is different depending on you know different environmental conditions and things like that and um, but another aspect that you've looked at is shark cage diving um that's what you worked with save our seas on and things like you mentioned earlier um, have you found that shark cage diving has had an influence on white shark kind of movements and, and behaviour? Well, the work I started uh, conducting was back in 2012, 20, well, 20, 2010 to 2012. So we were actively tracking the white sharks within Hansby. And one component of what we documented in that period was 
if they spent time at cage diving boats, how long they spent there before they moved off and, and did their natural thing. Prior to that work, Carl LaRoche and Dr. Alison Cock in False Bay had done a study in, I think it was around 2008, uh, on False Bay's um, white sharks. And they'd said that over time, white sharks spent less time at cage diving boats. There were no you know, conspicuous interactions that were of major concern. And our work basically just supported their observations. So we, we documented the same. Um, the thing is, this is chapter one of my PhD and it's already been published for years. <laughs> I have, like, I, I think when I hand in, I, there's only one chapter that I haven't published. So anyway, so you can go read this. But... That's impressive. <laughs> That's super impressive. Well, actually, you have no choice in white sharks. because it's so blooming. They're so charismatic and there's such competition. If you don't get it out there, then someone else is probably going to try and do it. So that's the limitation. Um, but yeah, so the study found that every, I mean, we did over 40, 14 individuals active tracking around about geez, 800 hours of out there every day. And every white shark, regardless of size, sex, if it went to a cage diving boat over time, it spent less and less time until it completely ignored them. And then to validate this, we, I mean, we also knew it from our boat based observations, different white sharks came around. It wasn't as if the same one stuck around all the time for major time periods. Um, we would start to notice that obviously if, if that was happening but then um, we hung an acoustic receiver under the boat or we had one deployed very close to the vessel and quite often you know you think from the boat based perspective that the white shark wasn't around it must have left the bay and then lo and behold you've got uh, detections of that animal validating that it actually was there it was just ignoring the cage diving boat because I you know it's like I always say it's like running on a treadmill and at the end of your hour jog or whatever cardio you've done you jump off and somebody gives you a piece of lettuce and that's your meal for the night you're probably not going to you're probably not going to return and do that very often before you get over it there's a seal colony in the bay they're proficient hunters they're not being fed enough at those cage diving boats to be able to replenish the calorific expenditure of staying around the boat circling the bay rushing and they're also not stupid so um, yeah, that's that's maybe a few bold statements there. But if you read the scientific aspect, you know, the, the longevity of the presence around the boats did, did not suggest anything. However, you know, now things have changed. And um, if operators were to be provisioning, because remember, the boats in South Africa are not provisioning, they're not feeding and rewarding the sharks for being there significantly, they are restricting the bait interaction. So if there's provisioning involved, or if you've got resident more resident sharks, then of course, there are very real risks with ecotourism. Um, being able to uh, condition the sharks. So, but it's certainly not something we observe through our research with white sharks. And as far as I know, it's not something that's been observed uh, around the world in, in other locations. That's fascinating, yeah. I love the idea of, um, it's quite sad actually to think about it as if like you're getting a piece of lettuce at the end of a, <laughs> the end of a marathon or something. I'm sure you come back for a donut, but a piece of lettuce, not so much. Yeah. I mean, let's say that might be like a cracker with a piece of lettuce, <laughs> but it's not enough. <laughs> it's just not going to cut it. I'm not going to get back not on even that any cheese again. on the cracker. No. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, but I guess that that's also that's good to know from a kind of tourism perspective as well. If people are thinking about heading out on those trips, that's something we've been asked before as well is whether cage diving is OK to do. So yeah, that's 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 really good to know and also fascinating at the same time. It's a really important discussion, and I think with cage diving as well, especially if it's done ethically, and you know, there's a very strict code of conduct here in South Africa. If you take cage diving ecotourism away, there's nobody monitoring those sharks, there's nobody protecting them, and there's nobody keeping them worth more alive than dead. A new valuation study from Guadalupe Island just showed white sharks are worth $1.8 million alive there to ecotourism or their conservation value, sorry, a whole bunch of parameters that play into that. 
we think it could be even more here in South Africa. It could be even double that. So the livelihoods involved. It. So there's so much to unpack around cage diving with white sharks. And I think if people are to just go in with that opinion of it's bad, they should really look into, well, what, what's the alternative if it's not there for, for the white sharks, you know? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a lot of different factors at play rather than it just being, you know, good versus bad. There's a lot of like kind of gray in between. Yeah. As with a lot of things in conservation. Sure. Okay, so we talked a little bit earlier about how we were talking a lot in the past tense about these places in South Africa being hotspots for white sharks and that things have changed. Um, And I believe it was in 2016 that we started to notice some changes going on kind of around the waters there. What changes did you start to see I don't know if we can really say it happened gradually. It was so abrupt and it was just so visually, I don't want to say obvious, that's not the right word, but it was kind of there in our faces. And then it was it was actually more just trying to process and keep up with, is this actually really happening? So to go back, yeah, early 2017, we kind of start from, because even though things were happening in 2016, obviously with science, you can't say it until it's 100% confirmed. So ignore the God. 2017, we had a dead white shark that washed out. Um, on the inshore of Hans Bay, remember it's super rare for white sharks to wash out dead. If they die naturally, often they sink. And, you know, I mean, prior to this happening, I think I'd been involved in maybe two other white shark necropsies. It was, um, I'd already been around for 10 years at that point. So it's not a common thing. And the time period of the white shark washing out dead correlated precisely with the arrival or the appearance of two killer whales in the bay, which we'd spent the prior day out on the ocean tracking. Uh, two killer whales that we know had been hunting seven gill sharks in False Bay. So that's that's what happened in our face early 2017. I still wrote a blog about it. I remember trying to be the whole you know critical thinker and speculative scientist and all of that and just kind of put all, all the theories out there, but don't say it, right? And there was no obvious sign. The shark wasn't opened up. There wasn't anything telltale, but just highly suspicious. that The day after these two killer whales came in, this dead white shark washed out and fast forward just a few months later and i i call it the slaying began and uh yeah may from may onwards we had white shark after white shark wash out and uh, yeah very obviously torn open by something and if you look at the, the the fact that this was a five meter animal the first white shark that washed out what else could have done that i mean the tear was so clean it was so neat it can't have been a human being i mean we would have made such a mess of it and how like how would somebody have got away with that right in the center of where all the cage diving boats anchor. It's too, there's no way. So again, the, 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 the infamous two had been seen locally around, um, you know, and, and always when we talk about killer whale presence in South Africa in coastal uh, Cape waters, we obviously need to bear in mind that there's a lot more, a lot more sightings happening now because of social media and people reporting. So it's hard to tease apart whether, you know, killer whales per se became, uh, as let's say an increase in number of them or whether, it was sightings effort related, but certainly these two are very conspicuous, very um, identifiable killer whales, and their presence def- definitely did up uh, increase at that time period. And so, yeah, in a nutshell, we we got um, the clash of the titans. We got we got two killer whales, highly uh, sophisticated in hunting sharks, uh, have now killed white sharks in hands by. We've got all the pieces of the puzzle there, but we just don't have the direct evidence of it happening. So. Yeah, it was it was a fun few years during the PhD because now I'm sat there scratching my head like, well, um, okay, 
I've just tagged a whole bunch of white sharks that have vanished. Um, we've got a load of carcasses that have washed out. We've got everybody fighting about whether killer whales are actually capable of this. And uh, a lot of p opinions, obviously, when, when there's gaps in, in, in evidence being out there, the world, and it's a very interesting topic, so a lot of opinions. Um, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna lie, Isla. It wasn't a nice time. <laughs> it was. It was highly stressful for the sharks, but also for the person who, one of the people who was trying to piece it all together. It was um, a lot of a lot of being covered in dead shark for days on end, and of course, a white shark necropsy. What a, you can't waste that opportunity. It takes hours to dissect them and pull out everything and weigh it and samples, and it was just crazy times. But in a nutshell, yeah, the, the sharks vanished every time the killer whales came through, and initially. Uh, the, the periods of absence would be two months and then that would increase to three months and then six months and then eventually, look, enhanced by the last period of absence was a year gone. We still, we had white sharks briefly back here a couple of months ago, orcas came through, gone again. It's just, it's the D word, but, but, but when, do you, when do you actually say the D word confidently? But it's, um, it, it's displacement, yeah. That's insane. Yeah. And it's just, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it started out as just the two orca, right? Is that, is it starboard and port? Right. Yes. Yeah. So it, those of you that know boats and <laughs> a bit of uh, maritime terminology. Um, so a, an amazing guy in False Bay, David Hurstfitz, he's the owner of Simon's Town Boat Company. Uh, so he's he's got more experience in South Africa as an operator for observing and documenting killer whales. Sorry, I always use killer whales and orcas interchangeably. It's obviously the same species, Orcinus orca, but I have a terrible habit to just go back and forth between both. I don't know why I do that. I've really tried to stick with one. That's fine. <laughs> so if I say orca or killer whale, it's just the way it goes. I think they're so charismatic that people know exactly what you're talking about, regardless of which term you're using. So you're fine. But yeah, they're the same thing. If people are confused. <laughs> I blame it on the, the the science and media component because media want orca. It's shorter and it's more catchy, whereas science want killer whales. So that's why I'm back and forth between both. But um, oh, he, okay. he, um, he's got the, the, the best sightings history record in, in the country. He observed uh, killer whales in and around False Bay for a while. He named Port and Starboard uh, when he first saw them uh, enter the bay. I think it was around 2009 he had his first sighting, then 2015 uh, they really started to appear around the Cape Peninsula uh, and then, of course, came into Simonstown and False Bay, killed the, uh, the seven gill sharks there, drove them away, caused a flight response. And then, of course, they pushed further and further east. They came into Hansby, then our white sharks vanished and washed out, same condition as the seven gills and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah. And so at the, at the time, it was only the two killer whales that were associated with doing it until it wasn't. So... Yeah, this year it all changed again. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit and hold that thought. Um, but first, I wanted to chat a little bit about what they're actually doing. Um, so Christian via email got in touch um, and he says that in the carcasses that have washed ashore, like he said, they had a very clean, almost like surgical removal of the liver. Um, do we know why orca are taking this and does this mean that they're lacking prey elsewhere which i think is a really really interesting question yes it is and you know that's that's a question i hear quite often that's a major question of mine is what why now and why livers um and of course what we do know about killer whales is that they they tend to 
have to be very careful about using the word ecotype because it's controversial, but they tend to become pretty specialist in a type of hunting strategy or prey species, and they stick with that or loosely stick with that. So this morphotype or ecotype, we've not really decided what we, what well, the, the killer whale experts have not really decided what they're going to classify port and starboard as, but let's say they're a rare morphotype that hunts specifically sharks, then that extracting the liver would make a lot of sense. The liver is the most um, nutrient-dense part of the shark, and full of oils, very, very rich in, 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 like I say, in lipids. So a calculation we recently did was, I think an adult killer whale male would need to eat an adult white shark liver a day in order to survive. So it's, it's <laughs> that's another kind of worms. Anyway, so the liver is very nutritious. The orcas learn how to, to, to restrict it. It's a specialist uh, strategy. And then that's kind of what they stick with, right? Although port and starboard have been seen harassing Cape fur seals, uh, sunfish so even though we don't think they're specifically eating those other species we don't know for sure um they're highly highly into their sharks and possibly offshore so again it's, it's hard for me because the killer whale paper an updated review on killer whales in south africa is coming out this year it's in i can't talk too much about it um but because of, of course it's not me leading that work but the consensus is and what i can say that yes the killer whales Port and Starboard were not coastal in the numbers that are being seen, the sightings history that they're being seen now um, prior to 2015. So they definitely hear more and it could be theoretically possible that they, they have a lack of prey offshore now. So let's say they were targeting pelagic sharks, blue sharks, makos, or they'd learned how to depredate at the pelagic longliners. That could well have been a thing. And now there's less food for them offshore. So they've now come into the coastal bays with that already learned strategy and now they're applying it to the coastal sharks. Otherwise, maybe they've, you know, they've just learned as they go. But uh, but certainly it's very new here in the Cape Coastal waters. We, I mean, we wouldn't have had white sharks here in the numbers we had them if those two had been around previously. They, they just wouldn't, yeah. Sorry, very long answer to that question. But no, yeah. no, no. It required a long answer, I think, because, you know, as, as you said, we've got to be careful with everything that we say because it's it's so new, this behaviour that's, that's happening. Um. But is there evidence of orca predating on sharks elsewhere or, you know, even if not the same two, like has has that ever happened before? Certainly, yeah. So offshore, um, you know, you know, in the especially in the Pacific, there's very heavy ecotyping. So you've got your transients, your residents, you've got your fish eaters, your mammal eaters. And uh, yeah, they've all been given such a, a tight niche ecotype that your offshores typically are your fish eaters or your shark hunters. But they're quite a rare type. Um, so down here in South Africa, the previous literature on killer whales has already said, Nico de Brun uh, published on this back in 2012, that we believe in the Southern Hemisphere, the orcas do show a bit more plasticity in terms of the, the species that they hunt. Um, but certainly it would be more of an offshore ecotype that would hunt sharks. And around the world, yeah, there's over about I think over 20 different species of sharks that have been confirmed killed by these offshore uh, orcas. But down in South Africa, I mean, yeah, we've got seven gills, bronzies, white sharks, a basking shark that we know of that have been killed by um, by orcas down here so certainly it has been it has been documented elsewhere just very rare to happen so close to the coast given that it's generally the offshores that are doing it mm-hmm. and like and so you know many instances as well because i remember when they were talking about the broad no seven gills too the divers that had gone down and seen that on the first day like described it almost as kind of being like a graveyard they were all just lying there with these weird little you know, holes in their body and no other, you know, yeah. th- there are some evidence of damage elsewhere, but it's not as if, 
you know something's come up to it and you know eaten the whole thing yeah it's just so, it must have been so bizarre to see that for the first time um yeah. but what does this so what does this mean in terms of the food web then? Um, so Maru via email, and she is not the first person to write in with this question. Um, does this mean that white sharks are still technically apex predators? So are they still at the top of the food chain then if, if this is happening? Yeah, I mean, I don't think apex predator ever changes with a white shark. They're always going to be that, that, that very top trophic niche. Um, the only thing is, once they are competing directly with the orcas, then, you know, they move into another area to be that apex predator, right? So in these coastal bays, uh, lacking their presence now, we've got these resident seal colonies of Cape Fur Seals. And, they, you know, the Cape Fur Seal population in South Africa is, it's not showing the, you know, the okay, well, we have had some die-offs of seals now the last few years, but the numbers are not reflecting any major decline. So post their protection it's been hypothesized that they're now you know they're stable and um the problem with that is obviously we've got fear effects and risk and and uh, the behavior of cape fur seals is very much scoped around predator avoidance i.e white sharks being around so if, if we have less white sharks around an ecosystem where especially where you've got cape fur seals then everything else within that trophic level that's below them is going to be impacted. And unfortunately, especially with the island ecosystem that we have here, directly adjacent to Giza Rock um, is, is, is a breeding colony of uh, critically endangered African penguins. So just within a few years, what we noticed here is white sharks abandoned Dyer Island, none around. We know that through confirmed tagging data, chumming effort, no white sharks. More Cape fur seals with performing riskier behavior. They've got no fear effects scoping their movements anymore. Spending longer times encroaching around the Dyer Island system, starting to attack and hunt directly African penguins for their stomach contents, uh, and also becoming an interspecific competitor to African penguins for small pelagic fish. So the small pelagic fish here are already like really overfished, and that's a huge problem just from the penguin perspective. But now the penguins have got that extra competition and direct predation on them. Some experts believe maybe 10 years we might not have African penguins around anymore. So this is this is all because white sharks aren't around in one ecosystem. Now, that extends right down the coast of South Africa because, of course, white sharks aren't just coastal. If they keep get, get, getting driven away from environments that they mediate the balance of the ecosystem from the top down, then it can have detrimental impacts. And I, I'm sorry, but I mean, we spoke about it before the podcast. I mean, like with peer review, I think sometimes it takes too long to, to, to call a shot, right? If, if we can see something happening, we should probably be able to act on that. But now it can take so long to get that science out because it's like, mm, but is it, can it be, can you say trophic cascade already? It's, it's a difficult one. So, so white sharks are critical apex predators to the ecosystems they inhabit. And we've seen firsthand now what happens in the wake of them all of a sudden not being around and it happens fast. And this is the thing with, you know, nature and especially out in the oceans as well, is that these things can happen and it's so unprecedented. Like, I I imagine when you started your PhD, you probably never thought that you would be investigating orca predating on white sharks and kind of the massive effects that that has had and that's rippling, you know, through the ecosystem. Um, and we talked about this just before we came, uh, came on air. Um, in that you've got a new paper at time of recording, which will come out this week. So hopefully by the time that our listeners get this, um, the paper will be out there and we'll put a link to it in the show notes so that you can go and read it. Um, but this paper is going to showcase some very, very interesting things. And I just wondered if you could, uh, as much as you can 
reveal. I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what this paper is going to show. Yeah, absolutely. I'm more than happy. I'm so relieved the paper's coming out as well because, um, you know, a part of it got aired early on in the year as part of a Shark Week show. Um, so it gave a, a snippet to, 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 to what the, the, the theme was, let's say. But yeah, I guess what, what I mentioned was that with all the, the science, the one thing we didn't have was direct evidence. We had tagging data showing flight responses. We had carcasses washing out, rips open, livers missing. We had the culprits, culprits on scene, port and starboard, but we just didn't have a direct kill. Anyway, fast forward to 16th of May this year. Um, a drone pilot had his drone in the air, Christian Stockforth, based in Muscle Bay, lovely young guy. And he filmed a predation of not just anything, you felt the predation of three killer whales hunting a white shark. So that footage got aired on, on Shark Week. The world kind of was like, wait, what? And then there was really not much any more information given about it. So now this paper is going to put not only that interaction out there, but we have actually helicopter footage from that day, which showed it was an hour long killing spree. So we, yeah, the, the, the helicopter pilot, he was flying back and forth for an hour. Um, and he was just with his cell phone, actually, filming from the air what he I mean he couldn't believe his eyes he'd flown there you know for over a decade and he'd never seen anything like it so we have footage and it was quite hard to analyze this evidence because it was shaky you know cell phone footage from a helicopter but um actually David Hurstfitz from Simonstown came on board and helped us analyze and stabilize the, the the video footage and there we saw killer whales chasing white sharks for the first time so how they caught like basically con them well not corner them, they, they, they circle one another tightly and the white shark sort of tries to defend itself by turning its back to the killer whale, but it has no chance because the killer whale's not only on its own, it has another one and another one with it. So it renders the strategy ineffective. We got um, evidence that it wasn't just those three killer whales that hunted. Starboard was there and he did make a kill and we actually got footage of him chomping on a shark's liver at the surface. So in a nutshell, we believe there was actually three white sharks killed that day. We have evidence that... Um, cultural transmission is happening so the killer whales are teaching each other this strategy adult to adult learning it happens very quickly uh in, in other killer whale populations it has been documented down in the south Crozet islands uh, a paper by amalot et al it's also a 2022 paper she looks at a whole population that learned how to depredate toothfish off longliners within like record time uh, so the paper shows finally we can put this to bed there is killer whales hunting white sharks in south africa it's irrefutable but also We've now got flight responses and another site abandonment happening in Muscle Bay, which was never a thing. So they're encroaching further and further east. They're teaching their strategies to one another. It's it's a lot. So yeah, that's that's all into the PhD, <laughs> and uh, and and you know I, I laugh because I like when I say it, I actually can't believe this is happening. Still, it's just I'm I'm still processing it, and I mean I can imagine what people think when they read it. It's like wait what um it's 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 quite unprecedented as you say isla and there are no clear-cut solutions um obviously the time to act was already in 2017 it took a long time to get that science through and now yeah where does it go from here we were talking about this because you you were joking that we I I was in danger of doing the whole podcast without recording it because I was just so fascinated by this stuff when you <laughs> mentioned it. Um, but yeah, I can't even imagine like the thought process of like, this is obviously amazing scientifically and very novel. And but also, you know, we're here to protect sharks and to conserve sharks and to understand more about them. And I can't begin to imagine that thought process of this is well in a way it's natural but you know if it does turn out that it's because the orca you know they're being 
they're having to move on to other prey types because of overfishing or something like that it's it's still got a human element to it but you know it is a kind of natural phenomenon like do, you know do, do you intervene at this point or do you have to just let it go like it's i can't even begin to imagine like how people are going to start to make that decision yeah it's there's no there's no actual clear cut answers with killer whales because of course they've already taught one another now so there's no way of targeting them and I would never, ever support culling of killer whales, right? But I mean, in, in terrestrial environments, they'll remove a predator that's become a problem or that's causing a lot of damage to a, a you know, more endangered species. That's not an option. They've transferred the knowledge, so that's null and void. Thank, actually, thank goodness in some respects, because it would be horrible to even have to entertain that alternative. But it's also a valid discussion point, and I understand that. The thing is, Isla, with South Africa, of course, we've got the shark nets here as well, right? So they take out, and this is a big problem that, that most research that's been published hints at, we can't have annual removals of 20 to 30 white shark happening year after year after year after year. So now we've got the added layer of orcas driving them out of areas. Remember, we've only necropsied nine white sharks. There's likely many more of them that were killed that didn't wash out. So there was already a tipping point with the shark nets. Now it's just been pushed further. And, and so, yeah, my, my immediate um, thought process goes towards crit critically, we need to... <laughs> think fast on our feet how to how to really enforce protection on southern african white sharks now because they're not in a league with elsewhere in the world you know us australia new zealand their, their, their stocks of white sharks are recovering you know we're seeing that from inshore presence from protective measures from actual enforcement of paper laws not just paper laws whereas yeah down here in south africa um yeah and then one thing i would really like to say is you know, people often confuse the orca argument as saying, well, you can't just blame orcas. It's a natural uh, phenomenon. White sharks are declining in South Africa but because of X, Y, Z. Nobody's blaming just orcas. What we're saying is the orcas are, the dots are connected. So the orcas are connected probably to some anthropogenic reason, i.e. removal of prey offshore, possibly fisheries, that's driven them inshore. They are now just a fundamental extra layer that white sharks in Southern Africa can't uh, handle in terms of pressure. Uh, to go along with the shark nets and all these other threats that we know that they they already face. So that's one thing that's really important to me is people understand that, you know, the science isn't trying to glamorize and sensationalize just one component. We're really trying to look broadly at the whole issue. Mm. And, and one thing as well that I hope people take away from the, um, you know, orca predation thing is we had an episode a little while ago called Do, called Do Sharks Matter with David Schiffman. And one thing we were talking about was like the ecological impact of taking a white, sh uh, you know, a, a shark, a top ocean predator out of the ecosystem and what effect that's going to have. And one thing that I hope this shows is that, you know, the, the ocean ecosystems are a very finely oiled machine. Like if you take one element out, it's going to affect everything else. And, you know, it's going to change you know change everything right down to the the most the bottom most level like you said the there's layers upon layers of that you know the, the orca might be driven by us you know we like we have done in every ocean ecosystem we are potentially driving this change and and we don't know what the effects are going to be further down the line So, so incredibly fascinating. I am at risk of keeping you all day when you have a PhD to write and I don't want to do that. 
Um, I could talk to you for hours, Isla, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we've both got the same same common interest. And so it's hard not to uh, to go into like massively in-depth, like, you know, even around the woods back again. But it's, yeah, it's, it's been lovely. I was going to say, in my head, I was like, don't bring up Baskin Sharks and Orca. Don't do that. Don't do that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I could pick your brains for hours on that. Um, but anyway, we'll just have to get you back on when you are a fully-fledged doctor, when you are Dr. Towner. Um, and we can have another little shark nerding discussion. Um, I, I don't know. I think I might be running away from academia for a decade after that happens. <laughs> my, Fair my enough. My brain's definitely due arrest, but I would, I would happily speak to you, Isla. No problem. <laughs> but you get it, right? That whole milestone of degree done, right? See you. Time to have a break. Yeah, see you for a bit. You need to do that, though. You absolutely need to take that break because, yeah, it's a PhD for anyone listening who is doing a PhD right now. We feel you. Like, yeah. it's so intense and you will never do that kind of um intensity again in terms of a project like it's just because you're so in it for years and years and years and you're looking at this one thing but once you're done you're done and you have the doctorate and you can you know go off into the into the world big wide world just drink cocktails (laughs) and not do anything for ages if you want to withered and destroyed (laughs) from years of health and 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 highly recommend to to do it on campus and to do it as a full-time job and not a side job or and also highly recommend not to breed in the middle of doing it but that's just three pieces of advice but anyway carry on Isla (laughs) brilliant absolutely brilliant um but yeah best of luck with the last couple of months um I hope I'm sure it'll go swimmingly especially if you've got you know the majority of your thesis is published that'll really help with your viber and stuff so good luck with that um but I do have one final question and it is a very serious question that we ask every guest as well to close off the podcast and that is if you could be any species of shark ray or skate in the world what would you be and why I think that's a fantastic question. I'm actually very keen to know what other people say, but uh, gosh, there's so many, but I think I'd be a female pelagic thresher shark. Ooh, Um, very specific. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we know there's a few types of threshers and, you know, the pelagics are like kind of warm and sea mounty and lots of, you know, lots of nice species there to associate, uh, associate yourself with. But I mean, they've got that incredible tail. It's like a superpower in itself. It's like a I always think of like Lagathoroth Vikings, you know, it's like a samurai sword. So, you know, that would be that would be one considerable weapon of defense to have. And given the threats the sharks have globally, this sorry, shark skates and rays have globally these these days, I mean, I'd say that's a pretty, pretty, pretty decent defensive mechanism to ward off somebody who's irritating or if you end up experiencing an angler you could give as good as you get and imagine tail walking as well on the ocean surface yeah pelagic thresher but female I, I don't know why I just I just feel that yeah yeah why not why not all for the female empowerment on this podcast as well um right but yeah fantastic answer yeah Alison I don't want to keep you any longer but it's been so lovely to talk to you and thank you so much for answering all of our questions about white sharks but also orca as well I'm so excited to see your paper come out we'll put links to all of that in the show notes so people can go and read it um but yes thank you so much for coming onto the whole tooth it's been an absolute pleasure 
Well, thank you so much, Isla. It's finally, yeah, it's so nice to finally chat to you face to face. And thank you for all the work that you do, an incredible communicator, all the contribution to Baskin Shark, conservation and research you do. It's just, yeah, you've got such a brilliant energy and it's been, it's been really a pleasure being on the podcast with you, finally. And thank you to Save Our Seas, who, you know, were instrumental in my, my whole journey. So, so I, I'm really appreciative. I really enjoyed oh, this. Great. Thank you. Oh, you're going to make me blush. <laughs> <laughs> A Scottish rose, an English rose and a Scottish rose. <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was hosted and edited by me, Isla Hodgson. Our lovely artwork is by Nicola Poulos. And the wonderful jingle that you can hear right now is by David Knight. A enormous thank you to Alison for taking some time out to chat to us about this, especially right at the end of your PhD. We really, really appreciate that. Um, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, you can find links to all the papers we discussed here and Alison's work and social media in the show notes of this episode. And thank you to you at home for listening. If you want a question answered on the podcast, you want us to cover a particular topic, or you just want to say hi, please feel free to get in touch by emailing isla at savearseas.com or by contacting us on social media. You can find us at at Save Our Seas Foundation on Instagram and at Save Our Seas on Twitter. Alrighty, have a awesome week and we will see you next time.